Welcome back, friends. The hope is a prayer away. I am your host, Pastor JJ. And before we descend on our Bible study, I would like to remind you that all of my Bible studies are free for you to download and copy, and all of my Bible studies come with no strings attached. No registration, no email required, no subscription, no thumbs up, no like buttons, and you will never have to pay a penny for any of the Bible studies that we have on our website. My only goal with this podcast and website is to connect you with Christ Jesus. If you would like to visit our website and see what Bible studies are available, the website address is www.hopeisaprayerawaway.com and uh, you will find this Bible study um, at some point. It will also be on the website. Now, let's get into the Word of God. Let's learn and let's have some fun. In today's Bible study, we're going to be studying God, false prophets, and teachers. So we're going to cover a little bit of ground today. So you hang in there and let's see if we can... uh, if we can all learn something. Amen? So the cross highlights in the most graphic possible manner is the humanity of Jesus. It cannot be overstated that Jesus was not half God and half man. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And though we have no problem speaking of the God qualities of Jesus, I am convinced that we struggle to wrap our minds around the humanity of our Lord. He was not not even some superhuman species that was somehow immune to all the human ills like splinters, sore muscles, fatigue, skin rash, swimmer's ears, and sunburn, and etc. In fact, Isaiah would say, of the suffering servant, like a root out of out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In Isaiah 53, verse 2. And Jesus was not new and an improved breed of man. No. He took on flesh like ours, and he suffered in the same ways as we do. It was essential that Christ take on human flesh in order to be able to redeem all that had been lost. And anything less would fail to accomplish God's purpose of redemption. Now let us start looking at the beginning. What was God's creation? So the issue of Christ's humanity is understood most fully only as it is traced back to the account of creation's beginning in the garden. Then Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we are allowed a limited glimpse into the birth of God's good world. The creator spoke and, and light dispelled darkness for the very first time. This was just the beginning of our Maker's masterpiece. He established time with the division of day and night, and then he separated the water from the land, 
followed by the planting of the largest garden ever. Soon the vegetation sprouted forth fruit, and the earth sprung to life. And on the fifth day, as a creator spoke, and the vegetation was well established, the ocean waters began to churn with every imaginable fish and creature of the deep as overhead. Newly created birds winged their way across the heavens. Then, as in a growing crescendo, the great beasts and livestock of the field began to run and roam. And as God looked on what he saw, he declared that it was good. This was just not some fairy tale or ethereal fantasy island. This world was real, a physical world that could be experienced with all the human senses. This world was not restricted to the boundaries of earth alone, but must be understood to include the heavens, plural, and the earth. That'll be another lesson that we'll uh, get into at some time. We're going to have uh, multiple series on the creation. And, and we're going to be on Genesis 1, 1 uh, for a little bit. We're going to get into it and hopefully uh, we can all learn a little bit. Amen. So this beautiful world in which the spiritual and earthly lived in harmony was the place God had designed where the human drama would unfold. It is noteworthy, I'm sorry, it is noteworthy that this created realm, which fully satisfies what the Creator Himself had envisioned, is not called heaven. When God originally shaped the space in which He intended humanity to inhabit forever, it is our very own physical world where the birds fly high and the sea creatures swim deep, the animals run free, and the stars shine bright. And for a time, it was paradise in every sense of the word. But the utopia was threatened by the very man entrusted to guard it. So we find that some dark days lay on the horizon. Adam was made in the Creator's image in order that he might work with and alongside and on behalf of his God. Adam's value and role in the creational agenda is almost always underestimated. But to do so diminishes our comprehension of the necessity of Christ's humane nature. For you see, Adam was intended to rule over all of creation on all of the earth. Now let us look at the beginning of humanity. The biblical language makes, it, makes this clear when we're told that God blessed them and instructed them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over everything that moves on earth, Genesis 1.28. Again, emphasis heavens, not singular, plural. This passage highlights the nature and the scope of Adam's intended purpose. 
Adam was a real physical man who God endowed with authority to rule over the physical realm, but not in the garden. Oftentimes, we mistakenly understand Adam's reach and responsibility to be limited and restricted to Eden, but this is simply just not the case. Adam's jurisdiction was to extend to the far reaches of the globe until one day all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's found in Numbers 14, 21. But tragically, instead of faithfully fulfilling his God-given role, Adam led an insidious revolt against the Maker because Adam had bought into the lie that we knew better than God. As the intended ruler and king over all creation, Adam represented all that he had dominion over throughout every generation, even until now. When Adam was driven from God's presence and the curse of Adam fell, the consequences came to all of us as well. For you see, the charge to keep and cultivate the garden was not Adam's alone. It was ours, as well as by virtue of our relationship to Adam. And if Adam had obeyed God, the blessings of his obedience would have flowed to his descendants but so too does the curse for his disobedience. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Roman, for creation was subjected to futility in Romans 8.20, meaning that every part of creation has now been plagued by the original sin, and now the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That can be found in Romans 8, 22. It is not merely the souls of man that need rescue and redemption. It's all of creation. And now let us examine the humanity of Christ. So let's get back to the subject of Christ's humanity. The problem, as, if, as we have explored, is that all of creation, which included which includes the entirety of the physical world, stands in need of deliverance from sin's curse. So in order for paradise lost to be regained, there is a need for the human race to pick up the garden mandate and obey God perfectly where Adam sinned. However, there is a problem. You see, all of humanity is deeply infected with Adam's sin. And there is none righteous, Romans 3.10, who are capable of such a task. So none of us on the face of this world is righteous, according to Romans 10. Now the only person capable of perfectly keeping the law is the lawgiver himself. But a potential deliverer must come from the seed of Adam. This seems to be an impasse in redemptive history. But God had a solution. You see, God himself would take on the flesh of humanity in order to succeed where Adam failed. And Paul says that 
the, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. Romans 5.19. Amen. Now, the only person able to save us and restore creation to its previous glory is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. 1 Corinthians 15 and 45. And no passage more graphically portrays this continuity, ademic struggle, more than Matthew 4, which recounts for us the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Jesus does not merely find himself in the wilderness. He is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In Matthew 4.1, Adam was charged with keeping, Genesis 2.15, the garden, which implies the need to guard and to protect it from one who would seek to destroy and loot it. Now, though Adam failed, Jesus stepped resolutely into the wilderness to do battle with the same serpent who had ransacked the garden and carried the human race into exile. And make no mistake, this one who would battle the serpent in the wilderness was not a ghost or a phantom. It was the man, Jesus Christ. And why does this matter? By entering the human arena, Jesus took up the war of the flesh. His life would be lived as a man with all of the struggles and temptations that are common to man. Pretty women, drinking, fornication, all the temptations that we, that we go through, he, he went through as well. And that is found in 1 Corinthians 10.13. And it says, no divine privileges would be taken. So he bled real blood, and he suffered as a man, though he could have cut his torture with merely a glance towards heaven. Then, the, then following his death, he vacated the grave and met with the applause of the angels as the debt for Adam's race had been satisfied and hope was born. This salvation was the work of a man, but not a mere man, only a sinless sacrifice born of Adam's seed could reverse the curse which our father introduced into paradise. May our hope be renewed today by the reality that Jesus clothed himself with humanity in order that we might be clothed with his glory as we live on our days in the renewed physical world where we were designed to live from the beginning of time. Now, what is the role of the church in this world? Well, let's examine that. Church is the translation of the Greek term ekklesia, ekklesia, and it's used in the New Testament to apply the to identify the community of believers in Jesus Christ. And it literally means the assembly, the congregation, or the meeting. 
A similar term was used in the Old Testament referring to experiences such as the day of the assembly, the Lord's congregation, or meeting before the Lord. Thus, when Jesus declares, I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18, it did not come as something unfamiliar to the common listener. And shortly after in the New Testament, the word is confined strictly to refer to the congregation of believers in Jesus Christ. It is worth mentioning that in the New Testament, no synagogue, temple, chapel, tabernacle, building, or other meeting place was ever called a church. You see, the term was always referred to the Christian assembly, and in the New Testament, it was used for both the local community of believers and the overall collection of Christians. And the first sense for which the word church is used, what we call local is defined by its geographical setting. So, for example, the churches of the New Testament were identified by the name of a city and never by the name of a country or a region. So, for example, one would speak of the churches of Galatia in the plural because Galatia was a region with many cities and therefore many local churches. Another example, when talking about Corinth or Ephesus or Thessalonica, etc., the singular form is used and the name of the city identifies the church. So, for example, the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus, each one of these churches was comprised of the Christian residents of the same city. And in the second sense, called universal, refers to the collection of believers in Jesus Christ from all times and places. Now, this church consists both of Jews and Gentiles. And the first meeting of this universal church will occur during the rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, where they shout with the arch angel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Oh man. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And remember that we have a, a, a biblical study on the Shekinah glory cloud come into play here. You guys remember? Okay. So together with them in the clouds, the Shekinah glory clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. Man, can you imagine that? Can you just imagine the, 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 the heavens opening up and Christ coming down and the angels are sounding the trumpet? Man, that's unbelievable. But this unprecedented event will happen. And all, that, and all that we have believed and loved, seeing only from a distance, will be a tangible reality. Until then, we rely on the local expression in order to experience communion. 
This is our immediate family in the faith. The local church differs only in size from the universal, but not in essence. And the nature of the local church and God's commitment to it are the same as those of the universal church. Now, who builds the church? Well, Jesus declared that building or edifying the church is something that he would do personally. He said, I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18. However, that does not mean that he will not also use others for the task. One of the, one of the most well-known metaphors used to refer to the church is the body of Christ. And Jesus Christ states that he is the head and that all believers form his body. The emphasis of the metaphor is on the union of Christ and the church and between the believers themselves, something indispensable to the understanding of how the church functions under the authority of Jesus Christ. And according to Paul, the Apostle Paul, every believer has a function in the church, just as the different parts of the body have a specific function. And for example, some people were just meant to greet you when you walk into church, and you look forward to seeing them time and time again. They have that gift. And some have the gift of being able to sing in the choir, I was not given that gift. Trust me. Um, I sing very quietly when I'm in church. But um, some of us were given the, the gift of being able to teach, to preach. And some of us were given the, the, the gift of being able to go and minister. But we all take part in forming the body of the church. Amen? So the idea of a of a group of clergy taking responsibilities for all the Christian ministry while a mass of lay people simply receive the benefits is to really totally foreign to Scripture. Bishops, elders, pastors, deacons, and new believers are simply members of the body of Christ with distinct responsibilities and roles according to the maturity and the gifts of each one. A believer that believes like Diotrephes and, and, and Third John, who takes ownership of the local church, believing himself to be the maximum authority, well, he usurps the place of Christ. Now, what is the role of the local church? Therefore, the ministerial responsibility of the local church falls upon the members as a whole. As the members identify their gifts and take on responsibility of administering them under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the church increases its capacity to bless and fulfill its mission on earth. And some in today's church have identified the condition of the modern church as the 80-20 syndrome. A small percentage of the members... 20% take on the responsibilities of the ministerial work, while the other 80% are mere spectators. Others have pointed out 
that with each passing day, the church is more and more like a football game, where from the stands, a crowd observes a small number of players who offer a great show. And those that put forth an effort on the field urgently need rest, whereas the spectators desperately need to exercise. And sadly, this image illustrates the reality of the church. And the crowd of believers that fills our temples and chapels each Sunday must discover how useful and necessary they are in the divine plan of evangelizing the building of the body of Christ. What was the church like in the New Testament? The church that we see in the New Testament is dynamic. Never a prisoner of buildings. We see the church meeting in the temple, in a synagogue, in the street, besides the sea, in public places, and often in homes. The New Testament church really started in, in the homes of believers. And Acts describes a community of faith in constant movement. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Acts 2, 46-47 And it appears that the meetings were daily and definitely not monotonous. Worship, fraternal communion, prayer, working and mutual edification, giving testimony of Christ, and taking care of the needs of the poor were not part of the special programs but rather everyday activities. Those that observed the believers' way of life called them people of the way. Surely due to their constant action, their defined doctrine, and because they could always be going or always be seen going from place, from one place to another. And I want to get back real quick when I said their defined doctrine. Friends, if you have a church and you haven't been taught all of the doctrines, that's why sometimes churches don't grow. It's because people aren't being fed. They're not growing in Christ. And uh, But we'll address that. Now, what is the future of the, of the church? The Lord says that the future of the, uh, the future of the Lord's church is a glorious one. The church will not only be victorious in heaven, but here on earth as well. By taking another look at Matthew 16, 18, we see that it refers to the church when it says, And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So Jesus' statement here does not present a small and fearful group of timid believers. On the contrary, it shows a vigorous and bold church capable of coming out victorious in any circumstance, including death. So when Jesus presents the church as triumphant, even against the gates of Hades, 
we should see Satan and all his demons defeated by the work of the cross and representing no threat for the future of the church. Amen. And those that form part of the church belong to the winning team and should speak and act as such. So the future of the church was established on the mission statement in Matthew 28 and verse 19. And Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You see, the verse does not invite us to make disciples in the nations, but of all, but of of the nations. As it advances its its teachings, the nations it teaches the nations how to live. I'm sorry. The church carries out the work of discipleship by just existing in the world. Of course, this places an enormous weight of responsibility on the shoulders of every believer, as it assumes that their lives are to be an example and an inspiration to humanity. And in Ephesians 5, verses 26 through 27, Paul declares that Jesus gave himself up for the church to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Our God has not failed in any of his endeavors, nor will he fail in this one. The church was designed to be holy and blameless. With the goal Christ with the goal Christ gave himself up, and with this goal his workers are to carry out their work. There is no reason to believe that we will not achieve this goal. Amen. And we can affirm the future of the church will be glorious. So what does God say about the present church? When we say that the future of the church is glorious, we affirm that the same is true in the present. And today the church is exactly what God stated. The house of God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, God's temple, his body, a chosen people, a holy priesthood, and regardless of the circumstances that it faces, it will continue being everything that God said it is. And in Ephesians 3.10, Paul explains what is currently happening with the church. So that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Heavens, not heaven heavens. We cannot fully understand the greatness of the church. For you see, for centuries, God kept, kept hidden this marvelous mystery. That which was revealed to Paul and others is so extraordinary that even the angels watch what was taking place attentively. The love of the Lord for his church leaves everyone speechless. 
God desired to bring the Jews and the Gentiles together into one people, the church. This is not easy for those who expect everyone to unite under the Jews in order, in order to come to God. But you see, Jesus Christ came to earth and gave up his own life to save us. This must be ad admirable to the angels who saw a good portion of their own fall with no possibility for redemption. And we're talking about the fallen angels. And since the Old Testament, the angels have shown curiosity towards this reality. But only recently and through the church has God instructed everyone and his wisdom has been fully expressed. This scene seems to describe the angels that watch the expression of divine love towards the church from the celestial balcony and in admiration and are able to understand the wisdom of God like never before. This knowledge should leave us breathless with tears of thankfulness and a profound sensation of admiration and humility as we see, see ourselves as, as a privileged part of the divine plan. Amen. Glory to God in the church today and for all of eternity. But you see, friends, this is the other part of today's Bible study. We're going to be talking about what awaits all of the false prophets and teachers unless they repent and they confess their sins and they get right with God. And in Matthew 25, verse, 20, verse 41 of the King James Version, verse 41 reads, Then shall he say, he being Jesus, say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Friends, as we have just learned in this post, that only God has the power to, number one, forgive all sins and to give all of us eternal salvation or to send us to hell. He's the only one. And I wrote this post because many times in church we find people that are judging other people and telling them that they're going to hell because of this or because of that. And sometimes these false prophets and teachers of today, they play God and they tell, and they tell people that they're going to hell because of this or that. Some false prophets and teachers of today even tell their congregants, that if they don't give their money, their tithes, that they're, that they're not going to heaven. Some pr false prophets and teachers demand that their congregants sign direct deposit authorization forms and have their tithes automatically withdrawn as soon as they get paid in order to be a member of their church. Pastor, that is not your church. That's God's church. And never, ever has God wanted us to sign direct deposit slips. God wants you to give to him from your heart. 
And he says, if you don't want to give to me, and if, if whatever, regardless the amount, it could be a billion dollars. But if you're giving it grudgingly, keep it. He doesn't want it. He'll take a penny. Let's give it in good faith. And with a, with a good heart, over a billion dollars. Friends, salvation and the forgiveness of sins are 100% free. And can only be obtained by repenting of your sins and by asking Jesus into your life and accepting him as your Lord and Savior. John 3.16 of the King James Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, anyone, anyone who believeth in him should not perish but have life but have everlasting life so who can have everlasting life anyone who accepts jesus amen now john 14 6 of the king james version and jesus saith unto him i am the way the truth and the life and no man cometh unto the father but by me it's not a church that can save you it is not a pastor that can save you it's not church leaders that can save you it's only christ and friends i know that sometimes these faults prophets and teachers sadly they tell you that you can buy your way into heaven if your family donates so much money to a church or a pastor to get your loved one out of hell and into heaven after they died friends that is not true once we die we either go to heaven or we go to hell and it's eternal and you can't buy your way into heaven. For Jesus is not for sale. Amen. And I want to speak to those of you. That have been turned off. By what you've seen in church. And I felt that I needed to address this. I know that there's a lot of pastors. And I posted them on my website. That have private planes, have Rolls Royce, that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And you may be turned off. But friends, remember, we're living under the time of grace. And it is our duty to pray for pastors like that. They're human beings. We're all full of sin. I am replete with sin, so are you. But our duty is to pray for them. Amen. And if you are attending a church where you don't believe that your tithes and offerings are being used for the ministry, then leave. Leave quietly. Don't be a disruption to the church. And find another church where you can grow, where you can be fed the word of God 
And with that, I tell you this. Maybe you're listening to this sermon today or this Bible study, and you've never accepted Jesus. And I tell all of my Bible students the following. I want you to picture in your mind, you know how you extend your hand out when you want to greet someone? And the person just passes right on by and they don't greet you? Well, friends, just picture Jesus holding his hand out to you for days, months, and years. And you've passed him by and you've never taken his hand. How do you think that made him feel? But lucky for us, he's a God of love. He's a God of forgiving. He's the God of many chances. And I don't care where you are in life, Jesus loves you. I don't care what anyone has told you, he loves you. He died on Calvary with your name and mine in mind. Whether you are in prison, whether you're this, whether you're that, He loves you. And today, He would like for you to grab His hands so you could walk together. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you would like to take Jesus' hand, from this day forward, please follow along in the prayer. Heavenly Father, I come before your throne. I ask you for forgiveness of all of my sins. I ask you this day to please come into my life. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. Please, Lord, from this day forward, hold my hand, guide me, Love me. Protect me, Father. I want to spend eternity with you in heaven. And Father, thank you for your sacrifice on Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. And friends, give me just one second. Let us all pray, please. Let's pray for all the pastors that are not doing the right thing and they're false prophets and false teachers. Let's pray for them. That's our duty. Father, we pray for all of the false prophets and teachers that are in your church today. And we pray that they would come to get to know you. We pray that they would repent of their sins and that they would be forgiven given by you father please bring them to understanding please rehab them have a moment of reflection and of repentance and we pray for them and for them and their families in your name my lord amen and amen and friends every time i do a podcast i always close it with the best phrase i have ever heard from a pastor His name was Reverend John H. Osteen. And he would close out all of his TV sermons with the following phrase. He would say, keep Jesus first place in your life. And he will take you places that you've 
never dreamed of. Amen? Friends, thank you for your time and the privilege of being able to share Christ with you. And I will look forward to talking with you tomorrow on our podcast. Thank you.